Brother White, will you come and introduce our speaker tonight? Thank you. Praise the Lord, everyone. Dr. Hughes, it's a privilege to have him here. It was something we thought we would never be able to do because sometimes people have such a busy schedule that it's hard to reach them. But we had thought about what do we need in order to build um, New Jersey Metro and for church planners. And it was to get us on the right track when it comes to marriage. We had started out wanting to open it to everyone. But the ministers had got together and said that we need to know for ourselves and start to build and, and the leaders because we're, we're building God's kingdom. And Dr. Hughes designed and developed over 250 church facilities. He's traveled extensively, to 27 year, for, extensively for 27 years throughout the United States teaching marriage and family seminars. He's traveled to England, Scotland, Wales, France, Spain, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Thailand, Burma, Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, teaching family seminars and providing assistance to churches who were dealing with traumatic events and provided crisis intervention. He's been married for 40 years to Lee and Hodges. They have two children, Jill and James Anthony Hodges, and they have six grandchildren. His education is extensive. He was um, Southern Eastern Theological Seminary. He has a Ph.D. in clinical psycho psychology. He has a Ph.D. in education honorary Lighthouse Christian College, D.D., Doctor of Divinity, Honorary Lighthouse Christian College. He has an M.A. in Biblical Studies, over 740 hours of continuing education. Um, he's Houston Baptist University. He has a bachelor's in math and Christianity. He attended Texas Bible College. He has a diploma in theology. He's an honors grad. He was on the dean's list. He um, attended Midwestern University. He has studies in mathematics and physics. Um, he graduated high school with honors, and he was a part of the Honor Society, Who's Who, Student, Senate, and Student Teacher. We just want to have you come up and take your liberty. Thank you. Lord bless you. you may be seated tonight. Before I begin tonight, let me say what an incredible honor it is to be here. And uh, I do hope and pray that something that I say over the next uh, few days will help your lives to become different. Uh, I understand that this really is more of a training session than a ministry session. And I'm very comfortable with that. I've taught college for... 12 years, and um, I enjoy teaching. That's, that's my role. I, I'm not really a preacher. I'm a teacher, and I understand that, and it's just an honor to be here. And so tonight and tomorrow, I want to um, talk with you about helping people. Helping people in our world today is an incredibly difficult task. And there are some reasons why it's difficult today, and we want to address those. But first, let me read some scriptures so that we can have a biblical foundation to address these issues. The first one is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Paul says, Marriage is honorable in all, 
and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Uh, there's a very unique word there that I will use throughout our sessions tonight and tomorrow uh, that I hope you take note of and you pay close attention to. And that word is honorable. Marriage is honorable in all. Now that word that we have translated honorable doesn't mean what our word honor means. When we talk about honorable, we mean that the person has characteristics or qualities that um, sets them above, above others. They're a different. They, they keep their word. They're ethical. The Greek word honorable is time, and time literally translates of great worth, incredibly valuable, precious, esteemed, very dear. So when the Bible says marriage is honorable, it means of great value. That's incredibly important because Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart's at. The things that are valuable to you will define how you treat them. Value defines everything about life, and we'll go through that in a few moments. Then from the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, verse 3 and 4. Through wisdom is a house builded, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Through wisdom is the house builded. By understanding its foundation is laid, and by knowledge you put precious things inside that house. So the three ways to build a home are wisdom, understanding, knowledge. There's nothing there about feelings or emotions. You don't build a strong home because you're emotional. You build a strong home because you pay attention to facts and details and in paying attention to details, when you learn some things about life, you just quit doing them because you see the chaos they produce. That's knowledge, not feelings. So tonight, uh, I'm going to probably spend more time tonight trying to address why we have such an issue today and how we can overcome those issues. And to do that, the first thing that I need to do is to address some of the other issues of our life. Uh, one of the scriptures I want to read, uh, there it is. Get the right button here. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to what? Hmm. Old Testament and New Testament. According to knowledge, honor, timely. Giving honor unto the wife... As the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your what prayers in the New Testament, the only thing that's going to stop your prayer is the problem between a husband and wife. The Old Testament, the devil stopped prayers. But that don't happen in the New Testament because Jesus conquered the devil at the cross. In the New Testament, he don't have the power he had in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, 
problems that are created in, in our world that causes us not to have answers from God is a result of husbands and wives that are not honoring one another. And when that happens, you create a world where God can't move. The marriage is the oldest institution in the world. God's order is not God, the church, and the family. Strong churches don't build strong families. Strong families build strong churches. God's order is God, the family, the church. The family is not an extension of the church. The church is an extension of the family. What you live at home or what you believe at church must be practiced at home. If it's not practiced at home, then you really have nothing to live by. We, we have to become a not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. We have to become active in the things that we do, and we have to do them, not just hear them. Not what I hear that changes my life. It's what I do that changes my life. Now, we live in a world today that has created such an elaborate structure of excuses that it's really mind-boggling. Nobody in your world today has to accept responsibility for nothing. The church has empowered that problem. We're as bad about that as the world is. Now, in the church, we give people the right to make mistakes because they can't control life. There's another force controlling it outside of themselves that they have no power over. It's called the devil. If Pentecostals didn't have a good devil, they couldn't exist. They'd have absolutely nobody to blame for their problems. I've been doing this 30-plus years now, over 30 years. And in 30 years of dealing with people, and I've talked to well over 30,000 people at this point, and in dealing with people, I have never had anybody walk into my office and say, Mr. Hughes, Brother Hughes, Dr. Hughes, whatever they want to call me. No one's ever showed up and said, Brother Hughes, you are looking at a problem. Everybody I talk to is going to blame a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a brother or a sister, somebody at work, somebody on the job, somebody in the world, some neighbor. It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's. And until you can get people to take ownership of their life, you will never help them change. We have created doctrines about the devil that are not biblical. There's no scriptures to back them up. The New Testament says resist the devil and he'll argue with you. He will say, who are you? Paul I know, Cephas I know, but who are you? That's what's going to happen. What's it say? Resist the devil and... He, what's that will word? What, what kind of word is will? Is that just a possibility? What is it? It is an absolute. There are no conditions when he can't or won't do what you tell him. Resist him and he will flee. 
Paul said, don't give place to the devil. The literal translation says, don't build a room on your house for the devil to live in. If the devil's at your house, he's an invited guest. We've got to have a good devil because we've got to have somebody blamed for problems. It's never our fault. And getting people to take responsibility for their behavior is the most difficult thing you'll ever do in your life. It's almost impossible today because we are of the opinion that people are like they are because of the world they grew up in. They have no hope of change because of the environment they came out of. And because of the environment they came out of, they'll, they're always going to be just like that. You've got to look at their world and their environment. If that's true, then Abraham would have never been anything because his dad built idols. If environment was going to wreck somebody's life, it should have wrecked Abraham's. He didn't grow up in environment. He'd have never connected to God. But God saw righteousness in a man that grew up in a world that had no clue who God was. This environment has nothing to do with our life. It's just how we got here. It doesn't determine where we're at or where we're going. We make those decisions. Okay, I'm going to say some things that might bother you. And if I do, I'm sorry, all right? I'm going to challenge your theology. Uh, we just say things and, and, and make statements that we really don't think about sometimes. But everything is not spiritual. If I cut my hand, I don't go get my Bible and read to it. If I got any sense at all, I don't start praying. I go get water and soap and I wash it out. I put some antibiotic. When I was a kid, we, Mom had this little bottle of orange stuff. It was in a brown jar, had a glass little rod in the middle of it. And, and, and when you got cut or, or scratched or, or you come home complaining with Mom that, that you'd fallen down, she'd look at it and then she'd take you to the sink and she'd start running water over and then she'd take soap and, and wash it out and you'd stand there screaming because of soap burned like fire and and she says, it's okay, son, just just hold on. And she'd get it all clean. Then she'd get that little bottle of stuff out. I can't remember the cure crow. Yeah, yeah, we had other names for it. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, we, we call, I don't know where we got the name for it, but we call it monkey blood. I have no idea where that name came from. It was orange. I mean, kind of funny looking, but. Man, that stuff would set you on fire. That you'd start calling, "Mom, blow, 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 blow," because it'd light you up, man. You, she'd pour that stuff on, and it just it just killed everything around. Or she'd get that big old brown bottle out and start pouring, and it'd start bubbling. Yeah, hydrogen it'd just eat. And then she'd put some antibiotic on it and put a bandaid on it, and they'd send you on your way and. It healed. Why? Because God put healing in the body. If you have a physical problem, you fix it physically. If you have a spiritual problem, you fix it spiritually. You have a suke soul problem, you can pray all you want, won't change it. 
Because it's not spiritual. See, you, you can come to church, shout, run the aisles, go home, act like a devil. 68 to 80% of all sexual abuse happens in a religious environment where people go to church and, and say they believe in God. They can quote the Bible to you. How does that happen? 53% of American families admit using violence in their family on a yearly basis. 53%. When you go to church, it's 60 to 63%. All statistics on family get worse at church than they do in the world. Why? Because 85% of people who have a problem go to church to get better. But they never fix their problem. We get them all spiritual, and we get them focused on the spiritual aspect of it, and they sit in church, and they've never done anything about their anger or their rage. You know what I've discovered? I have discovered if you were a jerk before you got the Holy Ghost, you're just going to be a jerk with the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost is not going to change your jerkiness. It's not going to make you different. You're going to, if you want your life changed, you've got to do something to change you. If when you were part of your old family, Paul says... That when you were part of the devil's family, that he did with them at his will. When you're born in sin and you're part of that nature and that family, you're a sinner by nature. That's who you are. But when you're born again, there's a person dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. Death is repentance. What is burial? It's baptism. When they put you down in water, you're, you're buried. When you come up out of that water, it's the Holy Ghost that, that gives you the resurrection. Now, you're a brand new person. You're not who you used to be. Now, as a child of God, you don't sin by nature. You sin by choice. On this side of the water, you can't blame a devil for what you do. Over there, you could because that's what happened. And we get to living like that and believing that. And then we get into the new kingdom and we become part of God's family. We no longer think it's our problem. It's still his fault. He's still doing all. He's, still, he's tempting me. Folks, if we just think about some things, what is the devil? Who is he? Fallen angel. Was he just an angel? He was one of three archangels. He was the choir director of heaven. Why did he fall? He exalted his throne above God's throne. He's a fallen Angel, the psalmist said, What is man thou art mindful of him, the son of man thou visit him, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. You know what I'm glad? I'm glad that the original Bible wasn't written in the English language, because we'd be in a lot of trouble if it was. The Hebrew to that passage of Scripture doesn't say he's made a little lower than angels. The word angel is Elohim. 
which we get God from. He made man a little lower than God. See, the difference between a man and an angel is God put his creative power inside of every human being. Angels have wills, or Satan could not have rebelled. So a will doesn't separate a man from an angel. What separates a man from an angel is the image of God, the creativity of God. The one characteristic that makes God God is he creates. He can speak and things happen. His word demands and creates. He put that inside of us. Jesus said, blessed are the peace. What's that word? Well, quit looking for it. He didn't say nothing about peace seekers. He didn't tell us to find it. He said, create it. Blessed are those who create peace. All of us have the power to do that. Oh, we can create chaos. It's just our choice. We, we See, it's not hard to be a jerk. You know what I'm discovering about getting old? You don't mellow with age. That's a bald-faced lie. I don't know who come up with that one, that you get better with age. That's a lie. You don't get better with age. I don't have more patience at 63 than I did when I was 21. I have less patience. You cut me off on the freeway, I don't want to bless you with a good day. You've got to get there before I do, so you're going to whip over and get on the shoulder and run down so you can get in front of everybody else. I don't want to bless every red light turning green so you can get there first. I might want to bless you with four flat tires, but I don't. I, 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 the older I get, the less tolerance I have with people and the dumb things they do. You know, the, when I graduated from college back in the, the late 80s and started practicing, and, and I, I just stuck with Pentecostals, I have spent less than probably 10 sessions with people who are not Pentecostal. So all those people I've dealt with is us. The first session I had was in a pastor's office, and they got in a fist fight in the pastor's office. I jumped up and tried to separate them, and she hit me in the back twice. I had bruises that lasted for a couple of weeks because she had a wicked right, and she nailed me twice before I could get them pushed apart. Bam, bam! That was my introduction to us. We got all kinds of junk we've hid, and we act like we're righteous, and, and we do all. See, it, it's not spiritual things that makes the house. It's wisdom, understanding, knowledge that changes people's lives. If you don't teach people how to take responsibility for their lives, they'll always be crippled. And in our world, we have a lot of needy people. Do you understand where we live? We live in this country called America that brags about being a free market capitalistic society. That's what we brag about. Yeah. We, we have the ability to create jobs. But do you really understand what that means? I create this product. I got to sell it to you. Well, the first thing I got to do to sell it to you is to make you understand how terrible your life is without it. 
I've got to make you needy. I've got to break you. I've got to make you worthless. Or I, how, many, how much junk do you have at your house you bought that you don't even use? Because some way convinced you you couldn't live without it. We had this little glass thing that, that we set on the counter that you'd stick a rod through the middle of it and plug it in, and it's supposed to cook a chicken while you're off going somewhere. You don't even have to be there. It's just going to rotate and rotate, and when you get home, it'll be done. Got used one time. I got all kinds of those things at my house. So do you. Because our world wants us broke. They can't sell you anything if you're whole. Your world needs everybody in it. Those politicians in Washington wouldn't have a job if we were whole. They need every human dependent upon them and broke and defective so they can keep their job. They're not trying to get people to be better or help people. They're going to major on the fact that, you know what, your environment caused you to be like this. And, and, and you were raised in a hole where you weren't taught these things and, and nothing this stuff was put in you. And so we're going to use that as an excuse. I can't help it. So nothing's my choice. Nothing's my decision. I'm not responsible for anything. It just happens. So there's some excuses we want to talk about. Lies we believe. Look at the first one. The devil made me do it. If God can't force you to do something, do you really believe that a devil has power to make anybody do anything? I can introduce you to the devil. Just go look in the mirror. It's called flesh. See, you really don't need a devil to be bad. All you need is an opportunity. It's in here. I'm watching some of this stuff I didn't realize until grandkids showed up at my house. i got six grandkids. I've been married. Uh, all that information you heard is, is old. I, I, this year will celebrate 43 years of marriage. I have six grandkids. The oldest two are 19 days apart. My children are 13 months apart in age. They got married six weeks apart and had kids 19 days apart. This sibling rivalry stuff, it's still alive well at my house. I got six grandkids all in the age of 13. The youngest one's five. There's a five, a seven, a nine, 11, and two 13s. You know what I've noticed about them? Nobody's had to teach them how to be a jerk. They are not little angels. They have never been little angels. They come into this world demanding, and before they're six weeks old, they can jerk everybody's chain in that house. They know how to get your attention. They know how to scream loud enough that the neighbors know, and so you'll go make sure. And they know how to do it in church. They know how to do it when you're in public so that they get more effect out of it. They've learned real quick. You're born that way. You aren't born a good person. You're not born sharing and your friends or your, your cousin or your sister shows up. You say, you know what? I was just noticing today that your day might be a whole lot better if I just shared my toys with you. Would you like to play with my toy? Is that how they show up? No. Is that how you showed up? No. So here's the problem with life. 
you can't see you and you have absolutely no clue what you look like. Now, you know what everybody else looks like, but you have no clue what you look like. Because everybody else, you see their package. But when you look at you, you see the content. You don't see nothing about package. You've never seen package. You couldn't see package. When the package you've seen is a lie. The package you've seen is a mirror. That's a lie. It's a reverse image. It says you're left-handed when you're right-handed. It's never told you truth. Besides that, it's your past. It's not your present. By the time light reflects off your skin into that mirror and back to your eye, you're living in the past. It's nanoseconds, but you're not in the present. You're in the past. So you've never seen your present. You can't see it. But we believe that it's all this other stuff causing these problems. And it's, it's a devil that's wrecking my life. When the truth is, that's just our excuse. And it's starting the garden, folks. We'll, we'll talk about the garden tomorrow and look at it in detail. There, there's some stuff went on there. You see, even in paradise, before sin showed up, two humans couldn't get along. In paradise, where there's no mosquitoes, <laughs> no jobs, everything you need is there. It is so air-conditioned, you don't even have to wear clothes. It's the perfect environment where it's the right temperature. Just in paradise, after seeing this woman show up that God put him to sleep and took her out and then brought her back and wakes him from his anesthesia and, and presents him with this wife and he called her woman. That literal translation, there, there one writer translated, wow, wow, he was quite impressed with the package he saw that day. Wow. And somehow he went from Wow, do you irritate me? I've been married 43 years, and I can promise you in 43 years that the wonderful lady I live with has ticked me off several times. She's irritated me on occasion. But she's never irritated me enough that I wanted to see her die. Where do you think Adam was at the day Eve is tempted? The Bible is so full of details that we never pay attention to. Where's, where's Adam? Is he in the back 40 naming animals? Is he keeping the garden clean? Because that's the job he has given. You, you dress the garden, that, that means janitor. When the limb falls off, pick it up. When, when You keep this place clean. Don't let it get cluttered. This is your job, Adam. And then you keep it. That means guard it. You decide who comes in this garden. Satan could not come in that garden without Adam's permission. You decide who gets in. Where's he at? Is he lost? No. He had set her up. If you take away from truth or you don't tell all of something, what do you call that? It's a lie. 
Okay, let's go to the other side of it. What if you add to it? Still a lie, right? See, truth is saying what was said to begin with without taking away or adding to. When Satan showed up in the garden and starts talking to Eve, Adam's standing there beside her. He's with her. She gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. There's that little detail. With. He's not somewhere else. He's listening to this conversation. He's hearing their response. And he's thinking, hmm, let's see where this goes. All this junk's happening around him. He's hearing the conversation. And the conversation Satan starts says, are you guys, I'm going to paraphrase, okay? Are, are y'all really happy here? Are you, are you really happy in this place? Are there any restrictions here? Are there any can't-dos, don'ts? Is there any place you can't go, anything you can't Well, yeah, there's just one little thing we cannot do. And out of all the things here you can do, there's just one you can't. What's the one thing you can't do? Well, God has said that in the, of the tree in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat of it. Is that all he said? Neither shall he. What did God say don't touch? He didn't. See, Adam lied to Eve. Adam was trying to make sure she didn't violate the law in any way. So he says, you know what? God's, we, we can't even touch that thing. God didn't say anything about touching. Do you realize the moment she picks it up and doesn't die, it's not hard to eat? Because she's convinced touching kills. Satan knew that touching that fruit wouldn't kill her. He knew he had her. Because when Adam lied, he's got an inroad. He's going to use Adam's words because he heard the conversation. You can't touch this. Now she picks the fruit up and doesn't die. Here he's standing over watching. See, he had several ribs left. They, 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 I don't know what happened there, but two people in paradise irritated each other. You know, we got some dumb myths about marriage and relationships and we, we, we make some statements like, I'm going to marry a soulmate. Come on, folks. That only works in America. It might work in some European countries. But if you go to Asia, you have no choice in who you marry. Two-thirds of the world today don't pick out husbands and wives. Two-thirds of the world, they don't court. They have no right to pick out a husband or a wife. Mom and dad get together with another family when they're just little kids. Make a commitment. Okay, your kid's going to marry my kid, my kid's going to marry my kid. And they marry one another. And I've, I've been there. I've watched them. And I can tell you, they have as good or better relationships than we do. Because let, let's, let's think about this courting business. This courting business is a play. It's an act. You've got to win somebody. 
And to win somebody, the real you can't show up. If the real you shows up, they're going to run as fast as they can get away. They're not going to say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. If the real you shows up, they're going to live in terror. So, no, they, they don't want the real you showing up. You've got to keep the real you locked up. He gets to come home and live at your house. And then all this chaos starts happening. Now, God's got an incredible sense of humor, folks. Just think about it. He took Adam, who was complete, and took Eve out and made him incomplete. Now the only way Adam's going to be complete is to have a wife. Now, the part of him he removed, he don't act like no more. He don't think like no more. They're not even alike. The brains don't function alike. The bodies don't function alike. They will never function alike. I've been married 43 years, and I still haven't figured out the lady that lives at my house. Every time I get it figured out, life changes. Now I've got a whole new set of circumstances I've got to figure out again. Why did God do that? Because God knew us. He made us. And He knew that if us humans ever figured something out, we would check out because we got the answer. I don't have to invest no time. I don't have to invest no energy. I don't have to do anything special here because I got this one figured out. If I do this and this and this, then it's going to make everybody happy. Really. See, my brain don't function like my wife's. It, it, matter of fact, if, if the doctors could remove your brain from your skull and your wife's and sit them beside it, you could tell instantly that that's a woman, that's a man. Because one side of a man's brain is going to be bigger than the other side. He's left brain. <laughs> it's just going to be bigger. And when he thinks about things in life, he doesn't use the right side of his brain. He uses the left side of his brain. Both spheres of a female's brain are the same. She uses both sides. I have never called anybody in my life to find out what kind of day they're having. I don't call my friends to see how their kids are doing. I don't call my brother to check on his grandkids. If I call somebody, I've got a problem. They got the answer. And they can tell me how to fix the problem or give me the information that I need from this conversation. My wife can go in the store and come out and tell me where the person in line spent Christmas last year or went on vacation, where they ate their last meal at them. I can get on a plane fly 18 hours and never say a word to the person beside me. I don't invade their space. I don't want to invade mine. I don't want to know about their life. I've heard enough. I don't need more. What's God's law of attraction? What? What happens with likes? They repel each other. So if the two of you are just alike, y'all going to fight all your life. You're never going to get close. Just, every time you get close enough, there's a force that's going to drive you away. Now, in the beginning, when I started all this, I tried to stop people from fighting. I don't do that anymore. If they want to fight, I'm just going to push my chair back, fold my arms, and just... I just get far enough away, and I just watch them go at it. And I will not interfere. I won't say another word. I'll just let them go. 
And when they run out of energy, then I'm going to start laughing. And, and that really irritates them when I start laughing. And, I, and, and this, what are you laughing at? I say, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure something out here. What are you trying to figure out? I'm trying to figure out what in the world ever convinced the two of you you want to spend the rest of your life together. What in the world did you fall in love with? If you really fell in love with this person, what did you like about them to start with? They'll start grinning because everybody can remember what they fell in love with. You never forget it. Nobody has ever forgotten. You remember. What did you fall in love with? Well, you know, he's, that sheepish grin shows up, and I usually go for him first. What did you fall in love with? Well, well, she was just such an outgoing person. She made me feel so good, and, and she could just she could communicate. And it just, she just goes on and on about what an incredible process. Okay, uh, what, what's really causing your problem right now? Well, she wants to go all the time. She don't stop talking. That's what you fell, what you fall in love with. I can promise you will irritate you at some point in your life because it's the opposite of you. I don't care how delicate something is, if you weren't born with it, it'll irritate you. What happens with that new pair of shoes you get put on? What do they do? Anybody checked your feet out lately to see if they're real soft and smooth? They're not, are they? Why? Because they've been irritated. You weren't born with shoes on. And the rub of leather or whatever or, or, or the pressure of the little space at the end of that pair of shoes. It, 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 your toes don't even look like they used to because you curled them up and stuck them in little spaces. That It's irritating. But it's amazing you tolerate that irritation because it's your choice. They look good. They make me look good. You can tolerate that one. But when there's a human attached to it that you forget you made a choice to live with. See, who you marry, okay, I'm, I'm going to mess with your theology right now, okay? Who you marry is your choice. It wasn't the will of God. Marriage is the will of God. In our culture, you made the choice. Don't blame that on God. You courted, you found somebody that you liked, and they, 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 they made you feel comfortable, and then after a while you started praying about it. But you'd already made the connection. You didn't pray about it before you met them. You, you start praying about it afterwards. It's just, what, your flesh is already involved. See, Jesus was asked, can a man put away his wife for every cause? Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Can a man, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Now, a woman had no right, but he could. He didn't like her. She burnt the toast. The house is not clean. He just, any, any cause. That's, and that's literally what was happening in Jesus' day. Men were, were, were divorcing their wives because they just got tired of them. 
Matter of fact, according to history, men measured their age not by how old they were, but by the number of wives they had had. A man wouldn't say I'm 55 years old, he'd say I'm 15 wives old. Bragged about the number of times he had been married and divorced. It was so rampant in Jesus' day. And the, the rabbis taught that it's perfectly okay. That if, if all you got to do is give her a bill of divorcement, give her her dowry back, send her home, and dad will have to find somebody else for her to marry. So Jesus would ask, can a man put away his wife for every cause? How did he answer that question? What was his answer? Thou hast heard of old. In the beginning, he made a man. He didn't call him Adam and Eve, did he? In the beginning, he made a man and a woman. And for this cause, what's the cause? He made Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve for one reason. That was marriage. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. If two humans say, this is who I'm going to live with. See, Isaac didn't find the will of God, did he? Dad got sick of seeing him mope around and told his servant, go get that boy a wife. And he got on a camel and took off. And when he landed, he noticed, whoa, that one looks good. And he found her dad and said, by the way, that's cousin. Do you understand that the Bible says if, if the Jews ever did what the first three did, they'd be cut off forever? Because God said in the law, you don't marry your sister or the daughter of your sister or the daughter of your brother or the daughter of your aunt or the daughter. And it just lists all these people that you're not allowed to. Abraham was married to his sister. They had the same fathers, different mothers. Isaac's married to his first cousin. Jacob's married to his first cousin. See, your family tree is supposed to fork. Theirs didn't. God says, what, what, what happened here? We can, your name will be removed forever from Israel. When I started studying families and started looking at the Bible, I was shocked at what I saw. But what really amazed me is that God hasn't hid anything. God didn't have to put some of these stories in the Bible, but he put them there. To let us know that healthy families allow people to make mistakes. Unhealthy families say everybody has to be perfect. Isaac just took Rebecca. There wasn't even a ceremony. There was no preacher there. She got off the camel. Straight to mama's tent. Now, to me, that's a little sick. We'll, we'll do, deal with that tomorrow. But that's just a little twisted. Tell me that's not sick. Good thing mom been dead three years, though. He was comforted after his. My wife is not my mother. I called her that one time. You know, my kids are about five or six years old. They're only 13 months apart, so they were around five or six. And 
they, they were in the room playing, and they said something. And, and I said, hey, Mom. She spun and looked at me. She said, do I look like your mother? Nope. Well, don't ever call me that again because I am not your mother. Her name's Leanne. I call her Honey. Matter of fact, my grandson asked me that question yesterday. She said, Papa, what do you call Mozzie? I said, well, you've heard me call her Leanne. You've heard, heard me call her Honey. You've heard me call her Babe. Yeah. I guess you have, haven't you, Papa? Yeah. She's not Mozzie to you, is she? No. Isaac married a mama. Caused all kinds of junk. We're going to look at the detailed families and how all that stuff happened. And if you don't force people to take responsibility for their behavior, nothing's going to change because they're going to keep coming back saying, you know, I just keep being tempted. And, and then we use this, this dumb statement that, the, you know, the devil, he made me lust. He, he just put this temptation in my mind. Really? That's about the dumbest excuse we've ever come up with. The devil's an angel, okay? Can you show me one place he, he ever created a body and lived in it? Jesus emphatically said there's no marriage or given marriage in heaven. So angels don't reproduce. When humans get to heaven, there won't be any reproduction. All, all that's, there's not going to be any of that stuff. It's over. There's no marriage or given a marriage in heaven. Satan's an angel. He's just a fallen angel. He, he's not above me. He's below me. How does he know what a human body has problems with? How does he understand lust? Because that has to do with flesh. If you haven't had flesh, how do you know what's happening? See, I can prove to you the devil can't make you lust. It's real simple. Show me one blind man who has a problem with lust. Just give me one. See, if you can't look at it, you can't lust after it. It's a product of what comes in the eye and what you behold and what you see and what you let the eye linger on or pay attention to. It's not a devil causing me lust. It's me. But i got to have a devil so I can get by with this. Well, you know, I couldn't help myself. You know, we've we got all these excuses that we keep generating, creating, that the devil made me do it. Or, or what about that I spoke before I thought? Now, for that to happen, your brain has to move locations. Or your tongue has to have a separate one than the one that's up here. It is impossible to speak without thinking. That is not a possibility. Words don't just come out by themselves. Your brain has to tell a tongue how to move, vocal cords how to flex, the lungs how to put air through them at the right speed, and for your tongue to move, to focus, to 
to phrase the words that are being said, or they can't happen. But we got the excuse. I, I, I spoke before. I just, you know, it, yeah, maybe you didn't let it filter through there very long. Now, that, that's a possibility that in your anger, you just went ahead and said it without filtering. Said, you know, that's because this next one is the big deal. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but you lying devil. You can beat me with stick and I can recover. You can say words mean scar me for life. There's nothing more deadly than a tongue. You know what the, the genesis of the New Testament is? Which book is genesis of the New Testament? The New Testament is nowhere close to in being in order. Okay? It's not even close. It's arranged by books. It's not arranged by order. What's the first book written in the New Testament? Anybody want to guess? James. Book of James is the first book written in the New Testament. And in it, see, James is writing to church because all of a sudden we, we got all these people filled with the Holy Ghost. First thing you got to do is say, let no man say when he is tempted, I am. Okay, but here's what we try to distinguish between because, the you know, he, he just makes one statement about his letter. It's to, to the, the churches or the, to God's saints scattered abroad. And then he launches right in, verse 2. I mean, there's barely an introduction. Right out of his mouth he says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation. Okay, so, okay, temptation. For the trying of your... Now, that must mean there's a difference between a trial and temptation, right? Well, it's not because they're the same Greek word. <laughs> we make, see, we make big deals out of things that you can't make big deals out of. The, the trial, my trials that happen in my life are because of me. But he said, start off, count it all joy when you fall into diverse You create joy out of every temptation shows up in your life. You make it joy. Because it's the temptation. It's, it's that struggle with the temptation that produces patience. And he, he just goes on to, to talk about it. He said, let it, you know, if you lack wisdom, if you, you don't understand, just ask of God. And God will give it because he doesn't beat men up. He doesn't. He didn't braid us them not. He, he doesn't chastise them or belittle them, make them feel stupid or worthless. If you ask God for wisdom, He'll give you the wisdom. See, I'm convinced we're willingly ignorant. We don't want to know because if we know, we're going to change. So we'd rather just not know. We don't know. We want no facts. Don't, please don't tell me about none of this stuff because the moment I discover, now I become responsible for everything in my life. So I, I got to take ownership of me. And now I've got issues and problems because it's difficult for me to take ownership of me. Then he says, let no man say when he is tempted, he is tempted of God. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the what? Do you understand 
that your battle with your flesh is what makes you spiritual? It's not your battle with the devil. Because the Galatian letter says, your spirit lusteth against your flesh, and your flesh lusteth against your spirit. And these two are contrary. They are at war with. Your spirit is at war with your flesh, and your flesh is at war. The war, the battle here is me. It, it's inside of me. Because once you get inside this brain, all kinds of stuff can happen that nobody has a clue about. Well, you let your brain go places nobody knows it goes. You let your brain experience things that nobody knows you've even been there. Now, I've heard men tell me things about their lives and things they've done that just, it's, it's you know, I, I, I think, wow, how in the world did that happen? There was a, a young man, I call him, he's, 20 years younger than me, so he's young. <laughs> you know, that's young. You'd, some of you might call him old, but he's, he's, he's an elder in his church. He's a board member. He's the head usher. Started having marital problems. And so pastor calls me and I'm trying to figure out all these marital problems. And I get talking to this young man. And he's... 37, 38 years of age at the time. And he's got two little kids. and he, he, I guess he just felt comfortable to just get totally honest. I, he's probably one of the most honest people. It took me a while to get him to, after I took his excuses away, then he, it, he finally just started letting all that stuff out. He, he said, I got a problem with lust. I said, really? He said, yeah, when I stand at the door, Greeting people when the women come in, I imagine in my mind what they'd look like without clothes on. See, in the house of God, where everything's spiritual, you let your brain go places. Nobody has a clue they're at. And that's not a devil directing that brain. See, his problem was he got addicted to pornography as a kid. And he was still so addicted to it, and I'll deal with that as well. But he was still so addicted to it that his wife has no clue what he's doing. But it's it's a daily habit. It, it, there's there's places he's going to to fulfill his fantasies, and so now he started taking it into church. But everybody at church thought he was the one of the most outstanding people that was around. But this lady started showing up. And, and and he's standing there greeting people, and she walked by one night, and she said, Does anybody tell you how nice you look? Well, well, no. You're just so kind to people, and, and boy, you just look nice tonight. Just stroking the eagles. And he said, Well, thank you. From that night forward, he went out of his way to carry on conversation with that woman. Well, she knew what she was doing the first night. The problem was her and her husband were divorcing because she had already had one affair. And so now 
you know, I, I've had people tell me they come to church and, and the first night there, God showed them who their new wife was going to be or their new husband was going to be. And they were, but the problem is they're married to somebody else. The will of God has never violated the Word of God. Okay? That, that is not going to happen. It will never happen. I've had men tell me that because of 25 years of faithful service and, and for being faithful, paying their tithes, always being at church on time, never missing church, always being involved in church, doing whatever the church needs because of 25 years of faithfulness. By the way, this is a preacher, okay? Because of 25 years of faithfulness, God blessed him with the right to have an affair. And God sanctioned his affair. I've heard all kinds of dumb things because it's either God causing it. When God shows up and finds Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, hey, Adam, where are you? We're hiding. Why are you hiding, Adam? We discovered we're naked. Adam, who told you you're naked? What was his response? You know that woman you made. Don't look at me, God. You created this mess. This is your fault. You made her, and so this is what we've got as a result of you making her. Eve, you know that serpent, the devil? He blamed God. She blamed the devil. And that's been our excuses ever since. You prayed about it, and you're convinced it's the will of God. So we're going to... Go to a pastor and tell him, you know, I've really prayed, and this is, God, this is the one for me. Are you sure? Well, in his mind, he knows, you know, that's like throwing gasoline on a fire. You really, you, this is the one for you, y'all? This is it. I prayed about it. This is the will of God. Okay. So you just took him out of the picture because he can't say, that's not a good decision. I know both of you very well, and in less than a year's time, y'all going to be in my office on a regular basis because y'all, y'all got this. Just not going to work because you put God in it. No one else can say one thing to you. It's the will of God, or devil made me do it. I have no control over me. See, words hurt. My, my temptations, they're for me. I win that spiritual battle. I, I may not conquer this flesh every day. Well, I can guarantee you every day I'm going to fight it. Some days I win. Some days I don't. But it's still going to be a fight every day of my life. And I'm going to get up and look in the mirror and I'm going to preach to him. I'm going to say, you know what? You're going to act right today. You're going to be nice to people. You're not going to act like you, you, you hate people and, you, and you're not going to say words to people. You're going to act. You're going to treat your wife with dignity and respect. And you're going to treat your kids with dignity. You're, you're not going to say things. If I don't, i got a tongue like a razor. I can leave everybody around just bloody when I walk away. They can be missing limbs and arms when I walk off because if I really let James loose, he can be evil. James got the Holy Ghost because Jesus never said the Holy Ghost would change one person. And I don't know where we come up with that. It doesn't say that. Jesus said the Holy Ghost do three things. They can guide you in all truth. 
remind you of what I've said, and teach you all things. When you get the Holy Ghost, you don't become God's puppet. God takes your life away from a devil, and he gives it back to you. Now you become responsible for your life, for your decision, for everything you do, for your choices, where you go. I become responsible for me. Number one complaint I hear from men in counseling is if she'd just let me be the head of this house. And I laugh at them. They get really irritated. What are you laughing for? I said, you're lying. No, I'm not. If she just let me. No, you're lying. Well, they get really irritated. What do you mean? I'm not lying. If she just let me be. She didn't let me wear the pants. I said, I don't see her with them on right now. Well, she just won't let me be the head. I said, you're lying. No, I'm not. Why do you think I'm lying? Because you don't want to be the head of the kitchen. You don't want to be the head of the laundry. You don't want to be head of cleaning. You don't want to be head of raising kids. You don't want to be the head of nothing. You just want everybody to think you're the head. Because this headship, this submission thing, has nothing to do with who's in charge. It has never had anything to do with who's in charge. It has to do with who I'm accountable to. Submission is accountability. And I am accountable for my behavior. My telephone has an app on it that allows my grandkids to find me at any time. They can punch it on their device, and they can locate me within 15 to 20 feet of wherever I'm at at any moment. My wife has it on her phone. My kids have it on their phone. My daughter-in-law and my son-in-law can find me at any time. If they want to know where I'm at, they can just punch that little button that says, Find Friends, and they can find out if James asks where he says he is. Why not? Why not? If I say I love them, why do I want their life a wreck? Because they're worrying about where I'm at or what I'm doing or who I'm with. They got every right in the world to know who I'm, where I'm at, who I'm with, and what I'm doing. This is fantasy of America. I don't know where we come up with this dumb stuff. We're a bunch of spoiled brats that want everybody to meet our needs. That's the next complaint. It should just meet my needs. And I, I say. Part his hair there for me, ma'am. Where's that USB port at? There's no plug-in to figure out what's going on in your brain. She can't meet your needs. They're yours. Meet them yourself. Grow up and act like an adult. Quit acting like a two-year-old. Wants everybody to feed them. You know, I have never had to counsel a couple that act like adults. Never. All the people I talk to are acting like six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, two-year-olds. They're not acting like adults. And I can look at their behavior and figure out real quick where they're stuck in life. Because two-year-olds throw fits. They lay down on the floor and kick and scream and holler until everybody pays attention to them or gives them their way or wears their behind out so they won't do it again. It's real easy to see where six-year-olds... They're, they just wreck life. If anger ever shows up in your life, 
Do you ever let thrill you out and blood vessels bulge out and face gets red and adrenaline rush runs the brain? It gives you a high greater than heroin, crank, crack, meth, or any synthetic you put in your body. If you ever get angry, your greatest mental capacity is six. You can't think, think past a six-year-old. So next time anger shows up, you know, you're going to really, really be productive. You're just going to tear up everything around. See, six-year-olds don't need any help causing chaos. They do it all by themselves. If fear ever shows up in your life, your greatest mental capacity is 12. You won't think past a 12-year-old. 12-year-olds are gangsters. They run in packs. So if you get afraid, you can call your friends, your mama, your dad, your sister. You're going to call. You're going to have a team effort here. It's not just going to be the two of you going at it. You're going to have his team and her team, and we're going to have a group war here instead of just two people trying to. Why? Because you can't see you. You have no clue what you look like. So every memory you have in life is defined by eye level. Where were your eyes? At what height? At the vent when it happened in your life. And that's how you see it. When your eyes are down here, you can see everything's really big. When in reality, they may be really small. I showed my son where I used to, where I grew up as a kid and where we used to ride our bicycles. We didn't build ramps out of wood. We just used ditches, you know. And we could make ramps to jump bicycles. We had our own dirt trails back in the 50s. And I, my son here heard me talk about where I rode my bicycle, and we drove by there one day. They'd never seen it. I moved away from my home uh, 1971 and married my wife and never went back. My whole family moved to Houston and so I had no reason to go back home. I had no family there and so we drove through there one time. They wanted to see you and I took them by and we turned on the street and, and, and he said, Dad, where's where's that real high bank to Houston? It was about this tall. And here, here I'm thinking it's three, four foot tall. It's, it's, but you know, eye level, when, 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 you're, when you're about this tall, and you have to crawl on that bicycle because it's bigger than you. It just looks huge, but it's really not. The eye level defines. So you're on the inside looking out. So you're seeing everything from inside. Which with time, this is all of our. Actually, if you go back in America, 150 years, parents arranged marriages back then. This is Hollywood, the liberating people. And this fantasy about falling in love, where's that pit at? Has anybody found it? It keeps moving because people, they fall out of it. I mean, it, apparently it can turn itself over. So you're going to fall in it, and then it's going to belt you. It's going to just spew you right back out. And you're going to, you're going to fall. It comes upside down. You're going to fall out of it. Really? Love, let's talk about that. You've never loved anybody until they tick you off. Now let's see how you love them. See, love has nothing to do with what they do back. It's what you choose to do. Love has no conditions. What? There's ten commandments of love and five principles, five absolutes and ten commandments. 
in the book of Corinthians 13. They're on my slide somewhere. We'll, we'll, they're there. Ten commandments. Five absolute. Always endures. That's not a possibility. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Never fails. That's love. It took grandkids for me to understand that one. Because some things are not real lovable. Now, when they were mine, I tolerated them. Or I beat it out of them. <laughs> no, I didn't. That's not true. My grandkids, there, there's, there's one that's about this tall. If God made clones, or God does make clones, because she is a clone of my wife. She looks, she is a spitting image. If you put her, her picture as a young person beside my wife's picture, I mean, I'm telling you, they are clones. If they were the same age at the same time, they would look identical. They are so close. She talks like her. She's got her personality. She everything about her. Uh, they're, they're all at my house. Six kids, the four parents. Parents always check out when they get to my house. They let Papa and Mossy take care of everybody when they're at my. They just come to eat and to chill out. And the kids, they, they know we won't let them get hurt or break a leg or anything. And our house is safe. And we we made sure all the outlets have plugs in them so that they're not going to stick. Coat hangers in them or bobby pins, and but ever you know, I I can handle some stuff low. I I got a tolerance level, but after a while, it just irritates. Okay, and after over an hour of this noise, just getting a little louder and a little louder and a little louder, and, and sounding like there was a herd of elephants upstairs in my house, I, I finally got up from the table and. punch the button on the bottom. I go upstairs and I walk out into the family area that, that's kind of open into my downstairs. And, and I walk out and this little nine-year-old, she was only six at the time, has the other four lined up against the wall. And she is going at them. Her face is red. Her neck muscles are bulged out. And she's just going. And they're they can see me, and they look at me and look at her, and it never dawns on her somebody else in the room. She is so intent on what she's doing, and she's just going out. And I just walk up and stood there for a little bit, and, and finally I said, what's going on here? And I scared her. She jumped, turned and looked up at me. She said, you're not my boss. You can't tell me what to do. Now, folks, that is not lovable. There's nothing lovable about that. I don't care how old you are. But at 60, it's really not lovable. So I just reached over and tapped her on the nose. I said, honey, I got a revelation for you. I am your boss. I am your mama's boss. I am your daddy's boss. You have met the boss of everybody at this house right now. Do you understand? You have met, she said, we're stood there with her head down, shoulders kind of rolled over. Just stood there. Wouldn't even look at me. When I got through talking, I, she walked off and I heard her mumble, you ain't my boss, you can't tell me what to do. 
That's not lovable. You don't want to go hug that. You don't want to cuddle that. You don't want to pick it up and. But I did. I, I just walked in behind her and I picked her up. And now she thinks she's in terrible trouble. She starts pushing. I said, No, no, honey, just don't put, don't fight me. So we walk out of the room and the others are, are they're hiding, looking around the door to see what. And I, I walk in my bedroom and I shut the doors. And there's there's a little couch in my bedroom and I walk over and sit on this little two seater thing in my bedroom. I said, Honey, what is wrong? She said, Papa. You don't understand. You have no clue what it's like to be a six-year-old. They wouldn't play a game. They didn't know what they wanted to do. And nobody would make a decision. So I made up this game on how we were going to play. And I taught them how to play it. I gave them the rules, Papa. And they won't follow the rules. And they keep laughing at me and saying, you're just six. You can't tell us what to do. Papa, you don't understand what it's like to be a six-year-old. I said, honey, I talk to those kind of people all the time. They Nobody plays by the rules. I can tell you that. Uh, those people are adults downstairs. They don't play by the rules. When they left, my wife was standing in the kitchen. I walked up to the bar. And I was kind of grinning. She said, what are you grinning about? I said, I am getting the privilege of watching you grow up as a child. I wonder if I had known you all your life, if we would have ever got married. She just died laughing. She said, she is my clone. I said, she is your, she is identical. My wife, her friend said when she was young, they'd go to get in a car and she'd tell everybody where to sit. She'd give instruction on everybody when they're getting in the car. Okay, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here, I'm going to sit over here. And they'd listen, they'd follow her. So she's just, we go out to eat with all of our friends. There, there's about ten pastors. We get together at least once a year. Sometimes they're all ten of us are not there. But we'll walk in the restaurant, we'll go call ahead and have this room reserved for a table of 20, and we'll walk in. They're standing, and she'll walk in and say, all right, y'all sit here, you sit here. And she's still telling on. She, she just takes charge. <laughs> Some of that's not lovable. you got to choose to love it. Why? Because of who they are, not what they do. See, love's not based upon what people do. It's based upon who people are. If I make a pledge to love somebody, and, and part of that ceremony, which I put in your notes, there's this little statement that in prosperity and adversity, I promise in prosperity and, you know what that adversity means? You promise if she gets up every morning and kicks you in the shin, you're going to love her anyway. That's adversity. You, you, you promise that if he irritates you every day of your life, you're still going to love him. That's the promise we make in the house of God. And the preacher reminds us, God's listening, and there's a whole bunch of people here hearing what you're saying. In the presence of God in this great crowd of witnesses, do you promise? There's people listening. You know what I've noticed about marriages? Nobody has ever stopped a ceremony and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. i got to do what? Are you serious? You expect me to do all? Nah, you stand up and grin on your face. 
And, and, and you'll say, oh, I do. You can't live in the promise. Our world says you nobody has to. Our world says you don't have to work nothing out. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to make anything better. You don't have to make choices that change lives. That's a good place to stop. But my throat's getting a little bit dry here. So. Uh, I couldn't drink enough water to change that. I had a throat injury several years ago. I got put to sleep, and in the process of being intubated, the tube stuck to my vocal cord. And when they pulled it out, they tore my vocal cord loose. And so, as a result, after speaking for a long period of time, I get this buildup of stuff that it won't go away till tomorrow. So. You know, that's probably one of the things that we, as a movement, need to address and make a decision about. Um, in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, what did they do to you? So what happened to the other party? They're, they're free because you're in a grave. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Why did God say that? That wasn't Moses come up with those set of rules. Now, the Jews, when Jesus showed up, blamed it on Moses. Because we weren't on the mountain to hear Jesus to hear God say all these things. And, and, and Moses comes down from the mountain with all this set of rules we got to live by. So this is Moses' rules. Why was God so serious about it? Because marriage is the institution the church is built on. I have espoused you to one husband. And when the marriage unit falls apart, the church falls apart. The best thing that could ever happen in any relationship is for the two adults to heal their lives and to become nice and kind to each other and treat each other with dignity and respect so that their children are not destroyed. Now, I'm going to tell you some statistics that you probably haven't heard. Anybody want to guess what percentages of marriages in America today will reach 30 years? Ten? Fifteen? Six? Five, twenty? Y'all way low. 57% of marriages in America will reach 30 years. Got any idea how many marriages reach 50 years? Two and a half percent. 50 plus percent of divorce happens in marriages after 30 years of marriage. And no one's talking about those issues. But they've got all the numbers. Is, is 
That's exactly the mentality. But that, there's no fact to any of that. See, you don't fall in and out of love. You choose to love people. So if you quit love them, it's by choice. You just stop because it's not that they're not lovable anymore. You just don't want to love them. And we justify why we don't have to love them. We say they're not lovable or they did this to hurt me. or they. If we lived our life, or if the Bible and the people of the Bible lived their life the way we do today, we would never have Jesus. Because the woman who produced Jesus was hated by her husband. Jacob hated Leah. And Judah is from Leah, not Rachel. The one he was so desirous to have because she was pleasant to the eye. She was good to look at. She didn't produce anything. She, she produced rebels. Joseph's family the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. That one of them turned back in the day of battle. They wouldn't even go to war. Benjamin's family. Show me anything they produced. A Saul? What Saul do? Went after witches and Judah is who Jesus come from. He is the third son of a woman raised by man that she that didn't love her. And the first three she named after his God, trying to get him to realize that she loves him. And finally, the last one she names Judah, which means praise. Right? That's quite a revelation. Our, our world says nobody has to fix things, make things work. Here's the problem. If you divorce somebody... How do you get rid of however many years of memories you have with that person? Now, we're, we're adults here, and so I'm going to be real frank. When, when there's an intimate relationship between you and another person, how, how do you keep the memory of that other person out of that relationship? It's not possible. But our world keeps telling us it's okay, no problem. But there are monumental problems because those memories don't go away. You don't rub them off. Besides that, in the eyes of God, sex is marriage. So every person you've had sex with, in God's eyes, you married them. The Greek word divorce is apoluo. Apo is a preposition meaning away from. Luo is a verb meaning to loose. It means to break apart what you glue together. When you glue things together and break them apart, you don't get clean breaks. You wind up part of this spirit attached to this one and part of this spirit attached to this one. You're going to think like them, act like them. Their nature's going to come. How, you, you can't, how do you get rid of it? It's embedded in the memory. It's always going to be there. Sex is not casual. Our world sold us a bill of good. There's consequences to behaviors that causes long lifetime lasting results as a result of what people do. Paul said, writing to the Corinthians, because at Corinth is this temple to Aphrodite. I've been to Corinth. They showed us where the temple was. And and in that temple to Aphrodite, there were 1,000 prostitutes. 
They worshipped Aphrodite through sex. So New Testament churches converted, and they've been taught all their life that there's no problem with just having sex with anybody you want to have sex with, and, and there's no consequences to any of these behaviors. And, and apparently they were bringing that. And Paul has right to them and said, Know ye not. Chapter 6, verse 16, I believe, of 1 Corinthians. Know ye not that he who joins himself to a harlot is one. The word join, same word Jesus used for cleave back in Matthew 19. That means glue it well together. Don't you know he who joins himself to a harlot is one? For two says he shall be one flesh. And that's where we have a problem in our culture today. It's not so much the marriage and divorce that's really the issue. It's the amount of, of, of problems we've created because that fornication, we just don't see it as any consequences at all. I mean, it, they were just immoral, and so there's no problem here. And they, they're going to, you don't get past it. You're going to live. That knowledge is going to be in your brain for the rest of your life. There's no selective amnesia. You don't rub it off. You don't get rid of it. It's there. And you've got to choose to maintain that information for the rest of your life. And that's where the struggle is. So um, Jesus did make the statement that a man should not put away his wife except save for fornication because the Old Testament said they were dead, stoned them. And the problem with adultery is it kills the marriage. It's dead at the moment it happens. The vows that were committed to each other have been destroyed. They no longer exist. They're dead. So from that moment forward, you're living without vows. And the only way I've ever seen a marriage work where adultery has been committed is for there to be a new set of vows established that they do another wedding ceremony, create new vows, and they make new pledges to one another. And I've seen that work. But if there's never any new vows, it'll eventually wind up in divorce. Now, America justifies it, says it's perfectly okay. So where are we going to stand? What are we going to do? Well, I think the key is we, we're not going to be able to fix this problem by simply dealing with the symptoms. we got to deal with the cause. And what we need to do is start training young people about the importance of purity and what happens when they have sex with somebody. And if you start teaching them young about their lives, you can prevent this problem from happening, and, and you, we won't have to be dealing with this issue. But we're, we're, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We've got to go back. We've got to affect our kids, and we've got to start teaching them what, what the, about the sanctity of marriage and relationships and what happens when these relationships are violated or broken. Did I answer it okay? Okay. I really didn't answer it.
I don't know if we have an answer. I mean, think about it. Jesus had every opportunity to nail down this issue. He didn't. Uh, I think if you look at the structure of the New Testament church, there, there arose issues that had not been addressed. And so the New Testament church came together in Jerusalem and they addressed circumcision. And there was a decision made. So the principle that God put in the church is that the church as a body is going to have to make some decisions about some things in life and how they affect people. And the church, when it makes those decisions, then it needs to become uniform and consistent with everybody. When, once that decision was made, the pastor wasn't allowed to go back to his church and say, okay, here's what Jerusalem said. Jerusalem sent emissaries to every church. So James picked out people and said, okay, it's your job to start going to every church that we have that's here, and you're going to explain to them at, at that church what our decision is here in Jerusalem so that it's not changed by the opinion of someone or, or, or someone deciding this, you know, we don't do it that way. But that was the New Testament principle of how the New Testament church did it. And there, <laughs> this really gets technical and it, it, it's an area that, that we really need some true discussions on. I, divorce always damages people. And the people damaged more than anybody are the kids. They're, they're the ones whose lives are wrecked as a result of what mom and dad do. The adults, may can live their life and may can overcome, may can be better, but those children will suffer all their life and will suffer in adulthood. And, and if, if their parents divorced, then the statistic is 80% of them will divorce their mates. So instantly the numbers just skyrocket as a result. If we can do anything to keep it from happening, we need to do everything with our power to prevent it from happening and cause the consequences or results of it happening. In the Greek language, there are, there are voices and tenses that we don't have in our language. There, there's a point actions, which is called punctiliar action, which is just present tense. But then there can be continuous action that's not point action. So if you're going to say someone uh, did something and it's continuously having its effect, there's a very unique way you say that. Uh, when Jesus addressed that issue, and he makes the statement that he who marries her that's put away causes her to commit adultery. That word is in the aorist tense. And the aorist tense is point action. He didn't say she's living in adultery. It says he causes her to commit adultery. Jesus wanted to say that from that moment forward she's living in adultery then he would have used the imperfect tense, which is repeated action or continuous action in time past. But he used the aorist tense, not the imperfect tense. If he wanted to say that it, it happened in the past and its effect was going to be in the future, that's the imperfect tense. 
if he wanted to say that there's a possibility, that's a poor privilege. So there were exact ways to say things where there's absolutely no arguing about what he was saying. And when Jesus used that phrase, it's in the aorist tense. And probably the greatest Greek scholar of the Pentecostal movement uh, was Marvin Treese. He had, a, he had a doctorate in biblical languages and studied under F.F. F. Bruce. And he was one of our most brilliant minds. And I asked him one day, I don't have that kind of background in the Greek language. I have a couple of years of it, but I don't have a doctorate in biblical languages. But he, has, he knows both Hebrew and Greek. And I asked him one day, is, is this really what Jesus said? And he said, yes, that's what he said. That's how it's, that's the way he said it. So he, he didn't say they were living in adultery. He said it caused her to commit to point of action the moment they come together. Um, the only unforgivable sin in the Bible is blasphemy. Regardless of all that, it's not a matter of if we can argue why we can do it. It's still not the problem. The problem is the destruction it's going to do to kids and the effect it will have on their lives and everybody else there as well after the event takes place. The best thing that can happen is for the two of them to get their marriage whole and to heal and to have a new life. So I don't mind answering questions while we're doing all this stuff. So, you know, if you you want to ask questions, I'll, I'll be glad to try and answer them. Well, the way I would deal with it is what I'm doing with you. And I, I, I am giving you a version of what I do in premarital counseling. And tomorrow you'll see in more detail how I do it. And when I get through, I don't have to address any of those issues because I've covered it all. And then it's now their choices and their decisions to make that choice of, okay, this, this, what, what are we doing and, and why are we doing this? Um, I have a three-hour session, so they can do it all at one setting, or we can break it up into three different settings. Or sometimes I go four hours, sometimes five. But I just go through this information, and um, and and I'll show you tomorrow uh, how all of this fits together, how we've been lied to, what the world's trying to tell us that's not true, and. We've been fed a lot of misinformation about things in life. There, for example, the one I just gave about marriage and divorce—that we, you know, the, the world says that 60% of marriages are ending in divorce. Well, yeah, but 
uh, 54% after 30 years, only 6% before 30 years. So it's not the way they're presented. Why? Because they have an agenda. It's control. It's, It's to make people dependent. And if you make people dependent, then you can control their lives. And Yes, sir. But what he said, just the first point. I don't know. I wish. <laughs> well, first of all, let me go back. What we haven't talked about is when he committed adultery, he married the other woman too. Or when she committed adultery, because sex in the eyes of God is marriage. Isaac took her back to his mother Sarah's tent. There was no ceremony. So when they had sex, that was marriage. And if you don't stay with them and you walk away, you've divorced them. So there's already been divorce committed when adultery takes place. It's already happened. And we, we, we never focus on that issue. I didn't follow your question. I'm saying if, if you're explaining that divorce takes place at the same time, uh, at the point in time when they prohibit or allow with the other person. Yeah, when they commit adultery. No, they're married to two people. Oh, okay. Polygamy was, you know, I, uh, Joseph, Jacob had four wives. David had 14. Solomon had 700. I mean, once you get to 14, what's 700? David caused a bunch of issues in his son's life. His son makes some statements that we never pay attention to where they came from. But one of them that Solomon made in Proverbs is, The spirit of a man can sustain his infirmities, but a wounded spirit who can bear that's from watching his dad. That's from the wounds and offenses that David suffered in his own life. That Solomon watches him bear, and he never really overcame them. In the latter days of his life, his son Adonijah is trying to take the kingdom away from Solomon. Joab, his nephew, recognizes that Adonijah is going to take that kingdom because he's playing the people, and he's getting the hearts of the people. And he's the eldest. That's who the kingdom should have went to. And he's playing their hearts. And so Joab comes to Bathsheba and says, Bathsheba, you need to go talk to David, because if you don't talk to David, then 
Adonijah is going to become king when David dies, and Solomon's not going to be king. And the odds are he'll kill you, and he'll kill Solomon as well. And her response to Joab was, I haven't been invited. He hadn't asked me to come. I can't come to him unless I'm given an invitation to come into his presence. He could kill me if I go without an invitation. She's terrified of him. So she goes, and David abdicates the throne and puts Solomon in as king. And for three years of Solomon's life, David is alive. And Solomon is king while David is still alive to make sure that Adonijah doesn't get the kingdom. And when David is about to die, he gives Solomon instructions. When I'm dead, if Adonijah gets out of line in any way, execute him. And the first thing that Adonijah wanted after David died was his concubines. And Solomon had him executed. So David told Solomon how to get rid of his own son. And then he also told Solomon, when I die, Joab has to die with me because he's a bloody man. And so you know, David's family was, was, was a wreck. Uh, and it just keeps being passed. So he, he got 14 wives. He don't know how to relate to any of them. Three of them belonged to other men. He had three wives that were married to other men. First one was Saul's daughter that Saul promised her him and then gave her to someone else, and he marries her. And then when Saul's dead, he, he, he gets her back. And then uh, Bathsheba that he gets by executing her husband. And then uh, Abigail, who was the wife of Nabal that David slew, and she became his wife. And so... And he's got real issues with women. I mean, real issues with women. You don't know how to relate to them. Just because you're spiritual, can sing good songs, don't mean you'd be a good husband. <laughs> David could do all those things. Um, when Jesus says that, that he caused her to commit adultery, if he marries her that's been put away, what Jesus is trying to do is to take their emphasis off of giving reasons for divorce and say, you don't need to do this. What you need to do is keep these marriages together and not try to find out if this okay after the fact. You're addressing the wrong issue. The issue is, let's not divorce. Moses gave you a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of your heart, because you didn't care, and from the historical viewpoint, when you look at what Malachi says, Malachi repeats several times about dealing treacherously with the wife of thy youth. As a matter of fact, in the second chapter, he says, God hates putting away. There's a colon. And after the colon, he says, for one cover violence with a garment. God hates violence in a marriage just as much as he hates divorce. God can't stand violence but it's an epidemic in our world today I mean it's just Malachi 2 14 or 16 I believe it's, I think it's 16 God hates putting away colon for one color violence with a garment see that garment and by the time Jesus comes they had gone from Abraham and Isaac who had no ceremony to they had created this elaborate marriage ceremony 
And in Jesus' day, that marriage ceremony could last a week or two weeks. And the bridegroom would try to catch the bride unaware. So he'd never tell when he's showing up. And so he, he would try to make his entry to see if she was prepared or ready for him. And he, no one ever know when he's getting there, so every day she'd have to be preparing for a wedding. She knew there was a week. I mean, it would never be more than that two weeks. But somewhere in that two weeks, he's going to show up. But she didn't know if he's going to be there the first day, the last day, the middle day. But he always tried to catch her unaware. And that's why Jesus talks about when the bridegroom comes, that, that the, the, the bridesmaids. That's not the bride, by the way. You ever notice that? It wasn't the bride that was caught off guard. It was her attendants that were sleeping. I don't know how we put connect all that to the church, but we've done it. So, you know, we just we, we don't follow through with some things. I don't know why we we just don't pay attention to details. We make doctrines out of things you can't make doctrines out of because it's not what they say. The illustration is that there was there, there you got to be ready. And there were five wise, and there were virgins. They, they weren't. The, they weren't. The, I mean, this guy wasn't married. Ten of them. He had a bride. They, these are the women who were there to support the bride. From Abraham to Jesus, there's a ceremony, and in this ceremony, the last act of marriage was he would take his robe and he would open it up. And the wife would come and stand right beside him, and then he'd fold his robe around her, and she disappeared in his robe. You couldn't see her anymore, or you could see her at her feet. So when you look for her, you couldn't find her. You'd only find him. And it was his robe protect his wife. She's to be hidden. See, that, that's why Paul says, Husbands, love your wife how? What I tell men is if you can't convince her you'll die for her, she has no obligation to be submitted to you because the next verse says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. True submission is defined by who will die for who. The first Adam didn't love his wife. The second Adam, which is Jesus, said, okay, I'm going to show you how to love your wife. You die for her. What the first Adam messed up, the second Adam corrected. And he went out of his way to prove how valuable she was and what you do to protect her. Where the first Adam didn't. He was willing to let her die. And Jesus said, no, no, that's not the way. You've got to die for her. You're not willing to let her die. It's your life's on the line. So Paul says, husbands, love your wife. How? Ask Christ. And I've never found a wife who was not submitted to her husband that knew her husband would die for her. It's never happened. Because the curse of the garden, thy desire shall be the husband, he shall rule over thee. Okay, so The curse was, but he's got to prove to her he'll die for her. And if he will, she'll follow him anywhere because that's the curse. That's what God put in her as a result of the sin of the garden. She will follow him if he proves he'll die for her. If he'll protect her, and she knows emphatically he'll protect her, she'll follow him anywhere. Okay. Any more questions? It's been two hours.
Um, Jesus made a powerful statement. You shall know the truth and the truth shall. Truth is the only freeing agent. If you can't find the truth, you can't be free. You find the truth, you're free. But because dysfunctional families can't answer questions, they just ask more questions. There are three signs of a dysfunctional family. Don't talk, don't trust, don't touch. Your ability to communicate defines who you trust. Your ability to trust defines who you touch. Lose your ability to communicate, you'll never trust anybody. If you look at us as a, a, a movement of ministers, we're the most dysfunctional bunch that exists. We don't talk. We don't trust. We don't touch. So dysfunctional families sabotage growth, development, change. Because if if change happens, then it makes everybody else uncomfortable. And so they do everything within their power to keep change from happening because of the dysfunction that we've got within our own homes and our own families and our own relationships. And See, I'm convinced America is not seeing revival, not because she doesn't have the men, the message, or the means. we got all three. I'm convinced we're not seeing revival because our families are broke. Healthy families is the only place healing takes place. If your family is not whole, healing is not possible. Medical science knows that you need a family, that a family is the only environment where healing can take place. And they know that if your family don't show up, they train those nurses and aides to go into your room and talk to you and stroke you and touch you and become a family to you because your family won't show up because they know you can't heal without a family. So if they don't, if you don't have one who comes to help you, they're going to try to create one that will become a substitute family for you because they know without a family you'll never heal. And as a movement, you know, we've lost our ability to communicate. We quit talking. We become paranoid of each other. My description of, of us is medieval, wherever there's a castle, which is a church with a moat and a drawbridge. And we're, we're paranoid about who comes across that drawbridge and gets into the, the that we let inside because we we used to have fellowship. And, and this fellowship thing you guys are doing is the most important thing that you do. The first church went from house to house in fellowship, and we lost fellowship back in the 70s. We quit fellowshipping, and, and we quit connecting because... We were terrified that, that saints were going to leave one church, go to another one, and and so you know just you know it just it, it become an epidemic, and we you know we just well we got isolated, and the instant you got isolated, if I can't talk to you, I only have one defensive mechanism that that shows up when I can't talk to you. There's only one other option. That's suspicion. I don't know how you think. Don't have a clue what's going on in your brain. So if there's no communication. Then all I can become is suspicious. What'd you do that for? What's it? What's he after? Well, that's strange. He's weird. You know what's amazing? Um, the the way I got here at doing what I'm doing is is real unique. My sister-in-law attempted suicide in 1989, and we nearly lost her. She took an overdose. Um, they pumped her stomach, counted 19 amitriptyline tablets that weren't dissolved. They had no idea how many had dissolved in her stomach at the after she had taken them. Um, 
her heart was beating at 250 beats a minute. Her blood pressure was 210 over 140. If she didn't have a stroke or heart explode, they said it would be a miracle. There's just no way she'd survive. And standing in the hospital corridor with my brother about 4 o'clock in the morning, the doctor came out and told us she has less than 5% chance of living. But if she survives, she's got to go on a treatment program. When the 80s, they, the, the, the world of psychology was blaming the church on all the problems. It's, it's because of who you are, your narrowed mind. It's, that, was, that was always the reason. It's, it's religion. It's wrecking everybody's life. And my brother said, well, I don't mind her being treated as long as you don't make religion a problem in her treatment. And the doctor kind of laughed. He said, sure, I understand. You have every right to say that, but... Let me just assure you that that won't be the case. Let me tell you what we know. If I treat her with medicine, her chance of survival is 7%. If I leave her alone, her chance of survival is 9%. If you treat her spiritually, her chance of survival is 80%. So her religion needs to be part of her treatment. She's going to be whole. We don't need to take it away from her. We need to make sure that it becomes part of her treatment so that she can become whole. Well, then he says, we need your family to participate. My brother said, that's not a problem. My kids will come. He said, no, no, we want the whole family. My brother said, all of us? Yeah. He said, there's 37. He said, it doesn't matter how many they are. We need them all to come. He, my brother said, why? And his words were, because there's no healing outside of the family environment. If she's going to heal, then all you guys are going to have to show up and help her heal. And her life's going to change, if so. Well, Brother Kilward came to me at the hospital the next morning. He, he came, and we were standing in the hall. He said, Brother Hughes, this is the third case of a, either nervous breakdown or suicide attempt in my church this month. We don't have an answer for these people. we got to find some answer. You need to go to school figure out how we can help these people. So I did. Okay. Before I went, I started preparing because of what I was hearing. All of us went and participated in, in my sister-in-law's treatment. And, and I'm listening. And I'm taking notes. I, I took probably five binders of notes. And I, I noticed that a lot of stuff they're saying is out of the Bible. Well, I started studying psychology and discovered that the, the original eight branches of psychology were all the product of a Jewish mind. Starting with Sigmund Freud, John Erickson, Gestalt. You just go down the list. They're all Jews. They've been trained in the Torah and the law. They, they, they took out of the Bible the good stuff that worked. Sigmund Freud, he had three parts to man, body, soul, and spirit. He just divided it up with some new terms he had. He, he's just trying to explain man a different way. I mean, then he, he used some twisted stuff he put in it. But you know, he got his original ideas. He got out of the Bible. It, they're not original to him, but he'd never admit it. So then I, I start listening. Man, that, and I discovered that the book of Ephesians is the best book in the Bible to counsel people. It answers every issue of life is in the book of chapter in the book of Ephesians. Got some incredible stuff in it. And so I I start studying, getting all the stuff together. And so I I got invitations to go speak, and so I'd go to church and talk to them about our experience and what's going on. And and people kept coming up and asking me, where'd you get your degree? I don't have one. Well, what gives you the authority to 
You know, how, how can you talk about this stuff? Well, it's in the Bible. So I went and got the degree. Yeah. Now, y'all are afraid of my degree. <laughs> because we think that the degree is going to change the way you view the Bible. But it don't at all. It just, the Bible's the answer. I, I'm not going to quote Sigmund Freud or any of these people. They, they don't have a clue. I can quote you what. In the book of Ephesians, there's a list of a fivefold ministry. Is there not? What chapter? What's it say? He gave some apostles, some prophets, some pastors, some teachers. Okay. Why did he give us these? For what? What's that word perfect mean? Well, that's what our word means. The Greek word means full-grown, mature, grown-up. So five-fold ministry. What's its purpose? Work in the ministry, edifying the body of Christ, perfecting the saint, till we all grow. The whole purpose of five-fold ministry is to force people to grow up and act like adults to the kids. That's the whole purpose of dealing with people is to get them out of childish mentality into adult mentality where they start taking responsibility for their decisions and their behavior. Nobody's making them do it. It's their choices. They're reading dumb books, looking at dumb pictures, then you'll have a problem with lust. If you can't put the garbage in, you can't get the garbage out. You don't feed your mind with the stuff. It's impossible to have the thoughts. So... Uh, Bible's the answer. I've, I've noticed that um, God's done some work in the hospital as a chaplain. And I've realized that the hospital is now, what you just said, recognized that there's a spiritual component in a patient's healing. So the chaplain, because uh, I used to always worry about going into a room, and usually when you go and say, how are you doing? I'm a chaplain. First thing they said, I'm dying. And my second thing was the fear of asking the hard question. But the job is to ask the hard question so it can start them on the process of healing. And when a person really wants to talk, is when people start showing you their scars, and then they start healing. Right. And, and now, because I, I used to go into the hospital and, and, and pray and, you know, and do the Pentecostal thing, and then I realized that I'm leaving a person sometime with false hope because I don't want to know where their pain is. In order for them to begin to heal, I have to know what is your pain. Are you afraid to be in the hospital? Are you afraid of dying? Do you want to talk about it? Isn't it James that says, confess your faults one to another and pray you one for another that you may be saved? No. Maybe what? What's the word? Healed. There's no healing outside of confession. See, God knew how he created man. The things you don't talk about, you act out. So as long as you've got them trapped up here and they never come out in words, They'll come out in behavior. They're going to come out. So they're going to come out as anger. They're going to come out as rage. They're going to come out as jealousy. They're going to come out. 
they're going to come out because they're trapped here. Confess your faults. One of them, pray you one for another, that you may be healed. Paul, writing to the Hebrews in the fourth chapter, says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find grace to help in time of need. That word boldly is parousia. And it literally translates freedom of speech, the right to say what you want to say, frank and fearless candor of speech, the license to, the permission to. God gives us permission to speak what's in our hearts, and there will never be any reaction to what we say. Even if we're angry at him and we're mad at him and we're bitter at him, he said, we have, a, we, we have a throne room called grace that he gives us the right, the freedom of speech, just to say it however, because he knows the instant you say it, healing is going to instantly show up. Because if you can get it out of the mouth, you're on the road to recovery. So confession is a big part of people's healing. Uh, both. Emotional healing is the things of the heart. But the things of the heart often affect us physically. Um, you know, the... There's a book written back in the 80s by two Christian psychiatrists. Their name was Frank Remitz and Paul Meyer. And they had a radio program called Ask the Doctor. And in it, they just took a, a, a group of all the questions they had been asked. And they answered them. And it's in a book form. It's probably out of print, but you can still get a copy of it. But in it, they address a lot of these issues, and if I remember correctly, they made the statement that over 40, I'm sorry, over 80% of heart issues are the product of unforgiveness. And a large percentage of cancer is the product of unforgiveness. And they, they started quoting all these numbers that they had come up with back then, and I was quite shocked. that. But our emotional issues affect the physical body and there can be physical consequences as a result. So, well, it's been an incredible honor to be here tonight. Y'all have wore me out. We want to have you here tomorrow to pour into us. And I'm, sure, I'm sure you're probably hungry. We want to make sure you get fed and everything. Amen. What can we say? Much needed, isn't it? Amen. We really felt like this was needed, as um, as you heard uh, uh, Dr. Hughes talk about, in our own movement, the United Pentecostal Church International, uh, there's some things that we don't deal with real good. There's some things that we've left on the back burner and we're not handling. And um, I thank God for this man coming here, and he's going to help us. He's already helped us, but it allows us to look at some things the way we need to look at them because we've danced around them for years and we've heard different teaching on different things or different conversations about them. And so let's get as much as we can as we see he's open. And um, whether it's after we're done here tonight or tomorrow when we're done, uh, we might not want to ask. We might have some other questions that we probably didn't want to ask out loud. You know, when you get a chance, grab them and ask the question because that's what, that's what he's here for. We want to learn as much as we can. Um, for most of us in here as uh, pastors and ministers, we want to 
be able to effectively counsel and minister those that God will send into our church and even our own home. I mean, I've gleaned some stuff that I can utilize in my own home, in my own marriage, in my own family. So we're all being blessed for this. So again, Brother Hughes, thank you so much for just ministering to us tonight. We really appreciate you. Amen.